Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Today on the show, John is joined by Chad Rubin, who founded the company Scubana, which he grew to over $5 million in annual recurring revenue before being acquired by 3PL Central. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Dynabook. If you're in the business of solving problems, you're going to need the right tools to help you get there. Dynabook's lineup of professional-grade laptops are expertly built for successful business everywhere. Need a budget-friendly option for everyday computing? The ValuePack Satellite Pro C50 comes fully loaded with everything you need to breeze through your daily tasks. The ultra-portable Tekra A40 and A50 are the perfect choice for today's hybrid professional delivering industry-leading security and reliability so you can work comfortably from anywhere. And if you're looking for a top-tier device that keeps up with business, the Portage X40L offers exceptional computing experience and military-grade durability in one of the world's lightest laptops. But workplace technology needs to do more than check off a list of features. You need a device that's ready to work, Every day of the week, which is why Dynabook offers the best coverage in the industry. Rest assured that we have you covered for the long haul with a three-year warranty and 24-7 anytime support. Get exactly what you need in a laptop and more at dynabook.computer. Again, that is dynabook, D-Y-N-A-B-O-O-K dot computer. Now, as you're going to hear in today's episode... Chad references to an assessment test that he's created and uses when hiring new employees. And this is designed to not make costly hiring mistakes. And I've reached out to Chad and he's been gracious enough to share this with you. So if you want to reach out to Chad to learn more about this assessment test, I have shared his LinkedIn profile over in the show notes at builttosell.com. Just reference in your message that this came from Built to Sell Radio, and Chad will be kind enough to share this with you. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Chad, who, as I'd mentioned, founded the company Scubana, which is a platform helping businesses with various aspects of e-com operations, such as inventory management, order fulfillment, shipping, and warehouse management. But as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. The first being how to build your moat at a competitive industry, how to raise money using a convertible note, how to attract high quality investors using Ruben's innovative method, how to avoid a hiring mistake that could derail the growth of your company, how to hire great employees using Ruben's assessment test, how to stimulate interest from potential buyers with an intriguing outreach strategy, and how to find meaning in your life after you've sold your business. Here to share with you his full story is Chad Rubin. Enjoy. Chad Rubin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Grateful to be here. Thank you. So good to be here. Tell me a little bit about Scubana. How did this company start? What was your business model? Uh, Scubana was started out of a pain that I had. I had an e-commerce business. We were manufacturing vacuum filters, coffee filters, cannabis filters, selling them online early days. So this is in 2006. I think about how far we've come in 2023 right now. And uh, I started selling on multiple channels and there was no software to run my business across those channels and to handle my order volume. So really dog-fooded it and started building a software for my own needs and started selling it to other folks in the industry. And this is, we, we incorporated really in 2014. That blows me away that there's not something out there. So you had a website where people could order coffee filters or vacuum cleaner filters. And, and then you'd ship them out. And you weren't, did you have a warehouse that you all yeah, ordered? It was a little more complicated, right? Because like, you have Amazon.com, which had just really got their marketplace launched back then. You've got Magento, which was what I was on at the time. You have eBay. You're selling across all these other channels and nothing would synchronize inventory. So if Amazon sells a product, you have to deduct, deduct inventory and then update the other channels and then print a shipping label and deduct that from your inventory that you have in your warehouse. I can't believe there wasn't something out there. I mean, that blows my mind. <laughs> and, and what about Shopify? Because this is the time where Shopify is on the big hockey stick growth. Because people have Shopify stores and some people take 
delivery of the widgets, whatever they're selling, it, you know, in their home or their small. Other people do drop shipping with Shopify. So tell me, how did you guys integrate or not with Shopify? Yeah, so we integrated, but initially we didn't because it wasn't the platform of choice. And initially, a lot of e-commerce brands and merchants just laughed at Shopify. They thought that Shopify was for, for small sellers, almost like Wix. Yeah. Uh, and so it wasn't really necessarily on our radar. And as they started to scale and prove themselves and add more high volume players, and we took notice, obviously, and we integrated into them. And we handled a good amount of Shopify Plus merchants on our platform uh, when Stupana exited. So you're kind of following the Jason Fried model of, of building a software company. You're, you're kind of scratching your own itch. You had a, a need in your own company and you built it. How much do you think you kicked in, uh, you know, in terms of like profits of your the vacuum cleaner and the coffee filter business to, to kind of get version 1.0 yeah. built? Yeah, so there was in-kind services that were happening. Uh, luckily, back then on e-commerce, it was like SaaS margins. So it was a cash cow at the time. And I was able to actually support using a lot of the resources, the employees, the office space that I had to help build the SaaS company. So I probably put in roughly, I want to say, in in-kind services uh, and payroll, et cetera, if you had to add it all up, which I did. It's about probably two, two, two and a half million. Wow, so a fairly big chunk of your retained earnings and your sort of like soft costs, if you will, employees are going into this. Got it. How did you make sure that your core business didn't die when you were working on this kind of shiny ball? I think a lot of the entrepreneurs I interview, you know, they they get the shiny ball, they think of a new business idea, and they think, oh, I could just you know pay Peter, what is it, steal from Paul or pay Peter, whatever. They they take money from one business and put it in the other, but taking their eye off the one business causes the other to, uh, to causes it to to atrophy. Did that happen to you? And how did you totally, avoid it? Totally happened. The business, first of all, the business had no moat. Uh, we make filters, coffee filters, accessories, and they they can easily be. Uh, copied and always I thought that I was going to be copied. Now it happened a little bit later than I expected, but the surge on Amazon, the gold rush did start to happen, I would say roughly in 2018. Um, I thought I had the right team in place to take the business forward. Uh, and uh, in hindsight, right, I would have made a lot of different decisions. But for me personally, my experience, I really want to, you know, our time on this planet is very short lived. And I want to maximize my time doing a something that's like super interesting, that's super unique, but also with going to, uh, I would say, um, amplify my wealth as much as possible in my family, like generational wealth on top of it. And I thought that software uh, is just a more lucrative place to do that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, and, and my understanding is is Cubana hat you were with a, a co-founder DJ. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit yeah. about DJ when yeah. he came in and what, what that's all about. Just uh, I told a friend in college I was having an issue with managing inventory. He knew a programmer in Washington D.C. and he's like, "No, surely there's something out there that could do this that does what Cubana does. Like it's impossible." And he was working at McKesson at the time, uh, and so he came to my warehouse and he thought, you know, he heard I was a big, big Amazon seller, which I was in the top 200 at the time. And he was like, hey, uh, I th he was expecting robots to be coming. And instead, it was just a jungle in my warehouse. It was a mess. And we started to take demos of other softwares. And I started to show him why I couldn't, they couldn't support my business. And he's like, okay, there's a real opportunity here. So we partnered on this. So we became 50-50 partners on the opportunity of Stubana. And we scaled it for seven years. He kicked in. What? Because you were already in for a couple million. So what did he bring to the table to get 50%? <laughs> well, that's the whole other conversation. Uh, so he was going to be the builder. And he was building while I actually still had an income coming in. So I was giving support. I mean, at the time, he had left He left what he was building to come to, to Stubat at the time. I kicked in employees like account managers and customer success and beta testing the product. And we started you know, adding incremental features to the product. Uh, so it was just a, it was an even split and it, I thought it was a good deal in hindsight, looking at it today. For who? For both of us, right? I think uh, we're both financially free at this moment in our life. Uh, and it was, it was a good deal for both of us. You know, and I, yeah. I, we, I had to give up a little bit of the pie, uh, to, to reach, I would have never been able to reach glory with Stubata, glory meaning an exit that gave me financial freedom that wasn't for his contribution to the company. 
So where does it go from there? It's, I mean, it sounds as so you're already in for a couple million of soft costs, uh, but but just walk me through the story from there. Did you get early traction? Did it did it take off? Like, well, tell me more. We got traction. So essentially, my first customer outside of my own business was my biggest competitor. So that was interesting. interesting. We both had the same problem. It made sense. Like he was selling parts and accessories. He was selling multiple channels, and I approached him and I said, "Hey, I'm building this thing," and we were ready friendly. And so he came on as our first customer and actually still is a customer today, I believe. Hmm. And uh, we started to just get scale. I started to go out there on podcasts at the time. There wasn't like these big Amazon YouTube channels where everyone tells you that there's Amazon passive income happening and there's courses and there's SOPs and process. And um, we just started to scale fairly quick. Uh, yeah, we just started to add incremental revenue on a monthly basis. And did you uh, shut down the coffee filter business or no, it's still it? running? It was running on, I mean, we were like the early pilot beta customer, every new feature we got first. So we got to test it. A lot okay. of it was self-directed from my own operations. And then as we started to add more customers, there was more features that came into the pipe. Um, there was a moment though, first of all, I never run a SaaS company. I was in my, probably my early twenties at the time. And, uh, we were running out of capital. I think a lot of founders have the same experience. I just certainly didn't have the the financial prowess that I have now and to be a steward of capital the way I do right now. And so there was a moment where we're running out of money. And I was like, hey, I don't want to put in more money. I don't want to put in more money. And so we actually raised capital from friends and family. We raised $880,000 on a convertible note uh, from friends and family. Define convertible note for folks who maybe that, that may be a new term. Uh, well, it would convert into equity at a future date. Uh, and it would mature, and you, they would get a twenty percent discount. And, and why? And why didn't you want to keep funding it yourself? Obviously, there's obvious reasons, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like, because some people early stage would be like, "No, I want to keep all the equity. I don't want to raise." What, what, what was your calculus at the time? Yeah, well, I mean, I already put in a lot of money, and it was a lot of money for me at the time, and. Uh, I think the calculus was like, I don't want to keep funding something myself. I need outside capital to take the risk, take the risk off of my shoulders. And I wasn't getting a paycheck from it. I wasn't getting a salary. Like I was unsure whether this thing was going to work. I was uncertain. And I was taking a tremendous risk. So I reached, so we, we had friends and family come in, which was interesting, sure enough. But we had two, I would say, more important people that came in to validate what we were building. One is I reached out to the 10 most prominent e-commerce people uh, to, to invest at Stubana. And sure enough, you knock on enough doors, one is going to open and one did open. And that was Brian Lee. He started a company called LegalZoom. He also started an sure. uh, honest company with Jessica Alba. And I wrote him, I wrote each of these people, these 10 people, a very personalized message that would hopefully pull at their heartstrings and they would see what, what I'm building and they would take a call with me. And Brian took the call and he actually became our seed investor, and then became on our board during our Series A that we did. This got it. So, got it. I got a couple of questions. How do you pull on the heartstrings when it comes to like warehouse management software? I'm like, there are, there's nothing emotional about this. How, what was your, yeah. what was the message? Well, so Brian, when he started LegalZoom, it was a pretty outrageous topic, and even with, with when you're building something that that nobody's done, nobody has pieced together shipping and inventory and analytics. You have to be non-consensus and you have to be right to win. And with LegalZoom, he had this crazy idea and people were like, wait a minute, what? And he reached out to, I think, the Kardashians uh, who became like the face, sort of like the face of the company. And that person had to believe in what he was doing. And in the same way, it's Dubana. Brian had to believe what we're building. He built this massive empire with, with an honest company. And I was super impressed with what he had done. And I was like, hey, just, just. Come see what we're building. Like you're gonna, you're gonna be super impressed. And so he came in, and we had one other interesting person come in, which is my account manager at Amazon. It's interesting how things kind of come full circle. My account manager at Amazon, his name was James Thompson. He would manage my account and give me feedback. And he was an early, early employee at Amazon. He was, he left Amazon, and I reached out to him. I said, Hey, I'm building this thing. Maybe you're interested. I know you cashed out some stock options at Amazon, right? It was early days. So why don't you check out what we're building? And so he became an investor. 
And then I invested in his business, which was Prosper Show, which is this Amazon sellers conference and became on a co-founder and on the board. Uh, so it was, like, it was a win-win. So that, that was really like validation that other people were interested in what we were building. Uh, and we just kept building since then. Got it. How did you put a value on the company in the friends and family room? It was hard. It was, uh, you know, valuation is sort of in the beauty is in the eye of the beholder in a way, especially in the early days. And so we, I think we had, I'm trying to like jog my memory back to those days, but I think we just applied a multiple on revenue with potential. And it was, I mean, this was in 2014. I think the valuation was three and a half million at the time. Like it was an $880,000 round on three and a half mil, roughly a convertible note. And I, I'm, don't quote me exactly, but that was roughly the numbers. Ballpark. Got it. Uh, okay. Yeah. And and what made you do the Series A, which again I'm not super familiar with all this stuff, but but fam, friends and family, obviously the name suggests friends and family. In this case, it was a convertible note, so it's like debt, but it converts to equity when an institutional investor comes in. So a Series A would be institutional money, right? Yeah. As I understand it, yeah. so companies and other private equity groups. So, so what was what was the difference between raising friends and family and and uh, so we four VCs come in. We had a lead, and then three that tagged along. Uh, we had Defy, Advance It, uh, FJ Labs. I mean, those are those are the three. Yeah, the three. Uh, and uh, and what what was different was we had a board. We had covenants in place. What's a covenant? Uh, like things in our agreement that perhaps held us accountable to something, right? Where we couldn't just like run off with the money. So for example, uh, salaries may have been capped for executives and founders. And we had to re, re uh, our equity had to refresh. So we had to put in more time to uh, make sure that we were really invested in the business, right? That we wouldn't leave. Because uh, there's a lot of, you know, as both founders like were critical to, to the business. I've heard this. The reason VCs use use uh, they 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 get preferred stock and, and a liquidity preference when they do is because they don't want the owners just to bail, like bail the next day when they raise money, right? So okay. it sounds like in this case the same same situation. Do they have a like a two x a three x liquidity preference or is it just a straight one x liquidity I preference? Think, I think we actually had reasonable terms with them. I think it was it was one x. They came in. Their term sheet was like straight down in the middle. It was just. Nothing. There was nothing crazy in the term sheet based on what our lawyer shared. And so what made us do the raise is we wanted to, first of all, we were running out of capital again. We nearly bootstrapped. I mean, if you think about $880,000 to build an enterprise SaaS business, uh, 80 plus my two and a half, but those were in-kind services. We, we did this raise. We started really building the team and hiring up and, and I would say moving away from just entry-level employees high potential entry level, Hipples, uh, we moved into hiring people who came with backgrounds and experience, and those people cost a whole lot more money. And we, by the way, we made mistakes after the raise, by the way, which I'm happy to share, which was around, for example, hiring expensive people that promise the world and they deliver nothing. And then you have parachute uh, relationships that we built around giving people golden parachutes once they left the company. So there is a lot of things, a lot of cleanup and a lot of mistakes in that process as well. Biggest mistake in hiring people that you can share? I mean, biggest learning. I'd be curious to know, is there a, uh, a secret to hiring hippos that, is, that, that, is, that you've learned along the way? I love that, that acronym, by the way. Uh, or is there anything you've learned about, about hiring the sort of senior executive with the CV that you can so, share? Yeah, a few things. So one is... Hipple, Hipple's a lot of times is intuition, right? And I have a Hipple, I have a couple of Hipple's that work now in my new company, uh, but one is they're hungry, uh, they're young, uh, they're nimble. They are just high slope individuals. High slope. High slope, raw, raw, like you have the raw ingredients. They just need to be cultivated and activated with their potential. And what we start to do, because I think actually the hiring process in general that we experience in life is fairly flawed. You, you enter into a room or a Zoom room now with somebody, it's a 30 minute call, it's a 45 minute call, and you're supposed to base their performance and relationship for the next couple of years on that one conversation. And maybe it's, you know, I'm having it and then someone else is having it. So now I've changed the process completely. 
Uh, we change our process internally. Number one is um, <laughs> I really look for high, high potential entry-level employees, especially uh, in the early days. I have an assessment test that I've built, which I'm... Oh, what's on the, what, what kind of questions would you ask? Yeah. So firstly, the assessment test, I used to use a software to do assessments. And it's really, it was an IQ test and they started to beat those tests using ChatGPT. <laughs> so suddenly all the people are getting A's on this test. And it's like, wait, what? So I actually built a different test. It's using, uh, it's using something that I've developed that looks, you can find online. It's, it's, there's an autism test that's based, it's a graphical representation that identifies patterns. And it's, it's as close as you can get to an IQ test. I developed it in type form. And then I have it automatically zapped using Zapier into a Google Sheets and it's automatically graded. So right away, I can sort of funnel my process down. So the first thing is in my job description, I have a little golden egg that I plan. Like if you're responding to this job, please just in the first sentence, make sure you read this uh, entirely. Share with us your favorite 90s band. Great. They share the 90s band. Now they pass part one. The second is this assessment test, which is part two. And that's been amazing. I really, and, and by the way, I, I got five out of six on this. There's six questions. I call it the creativity quiz. It's six questions, five out of six I got. I didn't have patience for the last one. Probably could have done it, but I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this right now. And uh, so, so essentially I hire people that get typically six out of six, but my, 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 my limit is five. And so some people are like, well, why do you, why do you only, why does it have to be six out of six? You didn't get six out of six. Why do you hold people to a higher standard? And the reason is that I want to hire people that are smarter than me. I want people that are better than me to join the company. Did you call it an autism test? It's, there, there is a, I just looked at some tests of pattern recognition online. And uh, there's some tests around autism specifically, but I, I don't call it, it's not necessarily that, but I've developed some of these patterns and embedded them into type form that allow you to identify patterns in a test and then select the score. So it'll give you three different blocks. And the third block is missing. You just have to identify what is the pattern in the third block. The first and you're looking for creativity. Well, the, the first question is actually given to you. So some people, believe it or not, have gotten the first question wrong. So, uh, but the first question is given to you. So there's really five questions that you can answer. And it's called the, it's called, at least I internally call it a creativity quiz. Can you give me an example of one of the questions? Not the one that's answered, but give me oh, no, one so of your... I'll show you three different six. It'll show you six images and their patterns. And you have to identify, or sorry, nine images. And they have to identify the ninth image. So there's one image that's missing. And you have to identify the pattern that makes it whole. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. And then uh, just to continue on my process here, this is all to not make mistakes. Right, because like I, I can tell you, I've been through so many painful hires and painful mistakes where we're both hurt in the process, and it's it's unintentional, but it's because of the hiring process. I, I feel that the hiring process is broken in my experience. This is my way to essentially not hire and make mistakes in the process and <laughs> alleviate a massive burden because I, I really don't like having to have those parting conversations of firing people. Nor I. So there's the creativity test. Then what? What's the other? What other? So this is a new addition. So this is a new addition that I've added. Uh, it's new, and I have someone helping me around this, which is the culture index. It's more of a personality test, uh, really, just to figure out if you have the right butt in the right seat from a personality perspective. And I am not trained in culture index. I can't speak on it that well. I've, I've hired somebody that essentially looks at the tests and gives me feedback on them. And if I have like some intuition where I'm like 50-50 on a candidate, this helps me become 51-49 one way or the other. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we're back to you're hiring a ton of people. You've got money from the Series A. You raised, how much was it? Did I read five million? Yeah, five million. Yeah. Yep, five got million. it. And, and do you, roughly how much equity did you have to give up for? Uh, roughly about 20%. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Got it. And that gave you enough cash to do what? What was the what was the next sort of tier you got to? The 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 it gave us cash so that we can hire and level up our team. Uh, we can experiment and do other marketing initiatives to generate leads. We can add features and development power to the 
team because I feel like we had a really slim development team. So yeah, that we deployed that capital uh, fairly quickly. How are you acquiring customers at this point? In the early days, it was podcasts, word of mouth. How has it changed with money? With money, we experimented with outbound sales. Uh, but remember, I told you I made a pretty bad hire in that process, and it was a huge mistake. So uh, there's always an opportunity when you're experimenting where someone can spend all your money, fail, and, and really derail growth. You hired a sales manager? I hired somebody that essentially would come in, and initially they were doing one small sliver of the business, but they wanted to take over anything that touched sales. And I was naive enough to, to give that up. And that's, 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 that falls on me. Got it. And, and what did they do that was a mistake? I mean, they didn't do much and they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, that's one. So they came in with a big, and maybe they even had the resume to support all these initiatives, right? But essentially gave carte blanche freedom to just go and, oh, hire this, hire this sales team and build this BDR team and essentially gave up customer success, support, sale, anything that touched sales, marketing, sales. And then I started taking things back over because things, everything's burning hot in the startup, right? Everything needs love, needs process, needs improvement, needs proper management. And not one person can really handle all those things well. And again, it goes back to just being a rookie and also coming into money as a business that never had money is, could be deadly. And so we just kind of just spent it in all these different places with no specific direction. So initially it was like marketing, uh, it was inbound podcasts, webinars, uh, blog content that I've done that, is, that started to rank really well. And then we started more outbound PPC strategies, uh, affiliates, cost per acquisition strategies, et cetera, uh, and hired people to support those roles and made horrible hires across the board. Hence the need for the psychometric testing. <laughs> yeah. So you're hiring, you've got a mixed bag of hiring results. You've got some good, some bad. What What did you learn about hiring? Again, I think a lot of people listening to this may be just looking at their first big hire. Maybe it's a 2IC. Maybe they're thinking of a chief revenue officer, or head, you know, head of operations or whatever. And they're, you know... If they're anything like me, they probably get bamboozled with some brand names on their resume mm -hmm. and they think, oh, this guy or gal is going to be amazing. What, what did you learn about hiring like more serious? Like, I, I get you on, on how you hire hipples. That makes a ton of sense. But what did you learn about hiring more serious talent, like C-level to use the old? Yeah. Idea? I would say, number one, make sure to call references. Mm -hmm. Really dig into the references and ask digging curious questions. Uh, How'd you learn that lesson? I just, I mean, I didn't do it. and <laughs> I didn't do it when I hired my expensive players uh, and I, I didn't call references, right? I didn't, and like, sure enough, they can probably pass these creativity quizzes. These are just kind of like hurdles in the process. Uh, but I think it's it's references and also thinking about the divorce. So mm -hmm. You know, everyone gets super excited and spitting when you have some great, find great talent and you're get, getting them into the business. But I wasn't thoughtful enough to think about what the exit plan was. And so, you know, one person in particular, right, had a, a golden parachute that was baked into, baked into the contract and you know, had to take a swallow a big pill to get them out of the business. But they also, in the time, they also happened to ruin culture, right? Like, and again, I'm not pointing fingers. I think it comes down to a lot of the mistakes that, mistakes that I made as a, as, a, as a business owner and as a CEO that I have to own. Did you have, go through the whole Jim Collins, good to great, here, you know, here are our values and mission, vision. Did you have that stuff? For Did, didn't, have, didn't have that. In my new business, I do now have values. Uh, okay. I didn't have that then. And so I, I do hire and fire against the values that I have. And those are personal values that I hold dearly that I've, implanted into the business. But Scubana didn't necessarily have those. So you brought people in who may have shared different values than you and, and you had to like, a, when you talk about golden parachute, like just describe, I mean, is it just like massive severance that you've got to pay yeah, or was exactly. it more options? You no, severance. Right. severance and of course there could be vesting options along with that. Yeah. 
but we're talking about negative stuff. But this thing, I mean, this is not a not a, this is a success story. This this business went to the moon. Like, tell me more about where you went and ultimately when did you get to the point where you decided that you thought you might want to sell it? So, I mean, the the outcome was beautiful. It was it just rained blessings for my family, for our employees, for my business partner. Uh, I mean, if you think about what happened during COVID, retail brick and mortar shut down. And so what you're left with is people now, there's a shift of spend from bricks to clicks. And we were at the epicenter of that. And so we, as a platform, enabled people overnight to, you know, if you're looking at Shopify and now you want to manage orders, well, you need an order management system. You have a warehouse, you need an inventory system. And we, we essentially had very fast onboarding to enable that. So we were at the epicenter of this shift and we capitalized on it amongst the very a negative backdrop, right? But we had built this product before the D2C boom happened, the direct to consumer boom, before e-commerce was before there was an e-commerce really, and or an, an extra e-commerce. So uh, there was an arc of our trajectory, and the business started to really get momentum. So, so tell me where you are in sales in 2019, and then what, what happened in sort of 2021 so when you were sort of fully COVID. 2019 was sort of like a, a struggle. We were slugging it out and definitely hit rock bottom at the end of 2019. 2020, uh, important board meeting came up, right? We had done our Series A in 2019 as well, right? So it's, it, was a, it was a mixed bad 2019. It wasn't a great year for us. Ballpark, either revenue or employees? Like I want to say, say maybe three, roughly in the early days, in the early 2019. Three. Three million. Yeah, three, three and a half, roughly. Yep. And uh, 2019, mixed bag, moving to 2020, big board meeting. At that board meeting, the WHO announced that there was a pandemic. And we flew back to New York from San Francisco. And uh, really, COVID and the shift, things pause for a second and they sit still in the world. And then suddenly, digital e commerce like went through the roof. Amazon actually stopped doing what's called FBA, which is fulfillment by Amazon, which is prime to the customer, which means Amazon shipping on your behalf. They weren't accepting new shipments in. So people had to establish their own shipping overnight and we're a shipping platform. Wow. So all of these things boded in our favor. Uh, and so 2020 was an amazing, we, were, we had tremendous growth in 2020. Ballpark, you go from three to... Um, I mean... Three, two, we went all the way to, to exit, let's just say five between that period. And we sold in April of 21. And, and where were you then? It was at, a height, it was at the height, right? Because if you think about April was the peak, like I couldn't have timed it better. And then you have what I consider to be e-commerce winter, the fallout of, of e-commerce and the shift of spend back to uh, bricks as they start to open back up again. So where are you in April 2021? You said five. Uh, I think r roughly around five when we exited. Five million. Yeah. ARR. AR, got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. And so things are, are really chugging along. It, was there a trigger that made you, like, did you get inbound interest or what was the, what would yeah. triggered you to sell it? A ton of inbound interest happened and that, that prompted critical questions internally right? We had a fiduciary responsibility to circulate the interest to the board and then, you know, had hard conversations around like, well, is this something we want to entertain? Like, do we want to continue on this path? And if this, if this company is interested, we have to see who else is interested. And sure enough, a lot of people were around the table uh, at the end, right before we essentially moved forward with one company. Did you hire a banker to deal that process? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and sort of how many companies, just to give folks a a bit of a frame of reference, how big the breadbasket was like, like how many would have been on a long list that you vetted? How many short list? How many kind of meetings did you have? How many LOIs did you get? Like ballpark? Are we talking? Can, can you so, give me a sense of what the funnel looked like? Yeah. So a few things. One is I always kept notes of who would be a potential acquirer of the business. I don't know if that's a weird thing or not, but I was always thinking to myself, is this, it is a hard business and SaaS is hard. And typically there's a seven year time frame that they say from inception to exit. Uh, typically, right, traditionally. And so I always had a list I would always add. And sure enough, the people that ended up buying us actually wasn't even on that list ever. Or never. Never. In fact, 
So when the going was, I'll just give you the, the background story around it. When the going was good, right, I started to explore and think about, okay, what are other ways we can now expand our revenue? So I was thinking about, at Stubana, we power brands. Right? We power brands to sell direct online. And well, we partner with a lot of 3PLs, third-party logistics companies. And what they do is they do fulfillment for brands. So they can technically become referral partners for us or sell our software for us to their brands. So I just reached out on a whim to the CEO of 3PL Central and I said, hey, I have this really good idea. Like You guys would be a great partner of ours and I'll give you a spiff. I'll give you some sort of affiliate commission because the brand, people that you sell to, their customer is our customer. And we can... Kill two birds with one stone. Not that we want to kill birds, but we can essentially team up on this and amplify what we have. And he's like, well, that's really cool, but why don't we talk about something else, right? Which is buying you. Uh, and so we had that, you know, that's sort of what triggered this whole thing to, to snowball. So you never know who you're talking to and what the outcome is going to be. And uh, you might have a different intention in a conversation. It could go a different way, but everything's for sale always, right? At the right price. Yeah, well said. So you've got a banker involved. Uh, they're running a process. Uh, I want to ask you how you're reaching out directly. Like, was that during the process prior to after? Like, can you walk me through that? Because that's unusual that you would directly reach out to somebody while a banker's running the process. I'm yeah, yeah, no, no, it wasn't. So actually, this is what prompted everything. So it wasn't during a process. Oh, so this is sort of what okay. started everything. It was, it was the initial domino. Really got it, got it. And then so this initial outreach. Yeah, go ahead. And it's funny how you know you put that into the world, and suddenly I'm getting inbound interest randomly for many other people, other companies, big companies, very big companies actually, and they're all coming emailing. And so I'm taking those calls, and and uh, I had a, a CFO mentor at the time. He was fractional, and he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I can help you do this and get all your numbers squared away," which needed a lot of work, by the way. Uh, but you need to hire a banker. If you're going to do this, you need to hire a banker. So we hired a banker. Uh, in the agreement, right, we essentially said, hey, if I bring any deals to the table, your fee is much less. And if you bring a deal to the table, right, you'll get a much more full, more well-rounded fee. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was, those were the terms. And we had a lot of people at the table. And then we narrowed it down. And then we, we went forward with 3PL Central. Didn't that create a, a sort of odd dynamic where your M&A professional would be incentivized to dissuade you from the deal you brought? Like, did you feel that pressure that your deals were less favorable or your buyers or like they were putting on a, a filter on that? Yeah. You know, if I, if I did it again, I would probably do it a little bit differently. Number one is I was bringing all these deals to the table. Like, in fact, it was my name and my outreach to other companies. So we had people at the table and then I, I wanted to expand the circle, right? So now I'm like, okay, let's explore all options that are available. Let's let everybody know. And so it was my name, my email address, my messages to companies to get interest. And I was doing most of the legwork. So at the end of the day, the banking team really was just paper pushing and uh, they managed the data room, right? Like it wasn't... And there's, I don't know if the efforts match the compensation. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you've got lots of inbound interest. Ballpark, again, like how many did you have kind of seriously looking at it? Maybe where you've signed an NDA and they've got a SIM and versus like, you know, like how many actually gave you an LOI? I think it was from maybe we had a list of 15. Each of those had one-on-one -on -one conversations. Then it narrowed down to say at the end of the day, six or seven core players that were interested and then signed with signed with one, one LOI. One LOI. Got it. Yeah, the six it was, sort of, yeah, it was exclusive. Yeah. And were the six talking like verbally talking valuation and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Did you guys get that bar? Yeah. There's a lot of back and forth around valuation with all of them, right? Which is how we came up with this one in particular. Got it. And so Take me through the one, the winning bid. What was that? Like, why did, what did they do that, that, that enabled them to win the deal and that, that caused the other five not to get it? Well, it seemed 
it's it just seemed like there was more wind on our back. It seemed like things were there was momentum. Like you can just feel it, right? You can feel the momentum. You can feel interest. You can feel. First of all, they made a great offer, and so there was interest plus momentum, and that really propelled the deal forward. How much can you share about the offer in terms of either multiple or you know? Can you share anything about exactly. the offer? I mean, typically in SaaS, you're seeing anywhere. I mean, at the time, depending on how your metrics were, right? Anywhere from a six to ten x multiple. How was your churn? Churn was, churn was started to get better over time. So we started to actually manage the right metrics. So um, I had hired a few con- contractors to like help us get better with numbers and to get our numbers in order. And so we developed like a, a workbook where it had our net retention rate and our churn, both logo and revenue churn uh, that we would manage tightly. And I would incentivize the customer success team to, to to reach the metrics that we wanted to to help us achieve those metrics. So the churn was relatively high speeds, high, right? It was about probably about uh, around twenty percent, maybe a little north of that. And so it could have been better. We could have done a better job at renewing and also renewing at a higher price, which are all things that we had started working on in twenty nineteen. Got it. So twenty percent uh, net revenue retention uh, annually, ballpark. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And then your sort of SaaS companies, you were seeing trade at around six to 10 times AR was sort of the, the, the strike zone. Yeah. Yeah. Time. Got it. Good rule Got of thumb it. in SaaS also that I learned from another, if it's a VC backed company, is typically you take the amount of employees that they have, you find that on LinkedIn, and then you move the decimal place one point to the left. So if it's 50, they're doing 5 million in revenue. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and actually, way. it typically works. Yeah, $100,000 per, per employee, right? In terms of revenue. And now you wonder why like you hire that one new person and, and they upload their LinkedIn profile and all of a sudden you get an inbound deluge of calls because you're about to clip past some threshold of employees some private equity group is tracking somewhere yep. in the stratosphere. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so um, you're going back and forth and the, the name of the acquirer was 3PL Cap Central. Central, correct? yeah. Yep. 3PL. 3PL Central. Got it. And what was the stickiest part of the negotiation? Like, what was the what was the part that was hard, hardest to sort of stick handle through? Uh, you know, there was multiple calls with each members of our team, and each time I had to bring in other departments. Essentially, I created like an inner circle of people that knew that this was happening. Those people were incentivized with equity. Uh, internally, right? My employees were incentivized. And also, real equity or options or 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 real, phantom equity or real, real equity. Real equity. Like if there was a sale, like they would they would make money on the sale. Got it. And so they were incentivized to see this this progress as well. So they were involved. I'm trying to think of like any hard thing. Like honestly, 3PL Central was so great to deal with. Uh, it was a pretty seamless. Like there wasn't a whole lot of hair on the transaction. Um, I know that like leading up to it, we had a partner agreement that was discovered with another company that may have been Harry. And I reached out to that company to to void the agreement. And I was very nervous to do so. And they did. They voided the agreement, which is... This was a partnership where they had some claim on the IP that you guys... Not claim on IP. Or- it was just like, hey, we're both partners in the space and we agree not to encroach in your space and you agree not to encroach in our space. It was something, something that was signed that was just a document floating out there in the ether. We never added, it was like a dormant document. We never actually activated or did anything together. And I don't think it would came, I don't think it would have been an issue, but it did come up. And they were like, hey, if you can solve this, we really, really highly recommend you do so. And I spent that weekend actually solving that that challenge. And I was very lucky to have somebody on the other side of that being like, yeah, I've been in your situation before. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to go ahead and get rid of this agreement. It, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> wow. The, uh, the gods must have been shining down on that person for, uh, for a moment in time. Tell me a little bit about your disposition working with a board of investors. Here's what strikes me. And you and I don't know one another well, but I, I, we had chat before we hit record. I learned all about Prosper and all of the other businesses you're involved in. Uh, we're going to talk about the new business in a moment. But I mean, you strike me as an entrepreneurial kind of person. And 
And the entrepreneurs I know hate being told what to do. So how did you deal with having oversight? And like you, you mentioned 2020, the board meeting. I mean, that sounds so much like the opposite of what most entrepreneurs I know would, would want to be around as a board meeting where you had to validate or, or, or beg for or grovel for the approval of other people. Like it, it just seems like an athema to the entrepreneurial ethos. Did you struggle with that? I definitely struggled to work at a larger business. I definitely tried. I put in a really big effort to try and it just wasn't, it wasn't a hell yes. And that's actually what I said in my resignation when I resigned in October. Like there was a lot of different roles I could have gone into and said, if I'm not a hell yes, I'm a hell no. And uh, that was sort of like my parting, my parting words there. But what about before you did the deal? I'm thinking of the, the, the months leading up to the actual transaction. Yeah. 2020, 19. I mean, you guys are growing like stink. You've got, but now you've got all these other people with opinions that you have to sort of placate and listen to. Like, was that a struggle? No, the board was great. Like Brian Lee, even the, the VC board, they were really, really supportive. They were always rooting for us. They were there to like, anytime I come across the issue, even right now, like the same investor invested in my new company, Prophecy. So uh, they are understanding, they're aware of the struggles and they give me really positive feedback, but it doesn't mean I'm always going to take that feedback. And so that was one, one piece was like dealing with a board. And I think it kept us, it helped us actually prof professionalize and mature. Uh, there was some co-founder debt that existed in the business. What does that, that mean? You mean financial? No, co-founder debt. Like uh, we had issues that maybe were unresolved that sort of would were had built up over time and then never actually were, were solved. And so they were a great uh, middle facilitator uh, to come in and be like, hey, guys, like, I'm going to hear what's going on and I'm going to give you some feedback here. And we had to listen to their feedback to a degree because they were on our board and because they had a vested interest in seeing us succeed. And we wanted to coexist together. We had to. So yeah. they were really, really helpful being that third person to, uh, to vote, right? 5149 to, to, to make votes and make decisions and make them more effortlessly. Yeah. Good. So let's get into prophecy. And, and I'd, I'd love for you to share what we were talking about offline, um, your sort of learning and, and, and maybe do over if you had prophecy over to do again, although it's a very early you know, part of the journey, but you, you shared something offline that I'd love to get into. So maybe just describe the new business and, and how that came about. Yeah. So, so firstly, when I sold Scubana in April of 21, I worked at the company, uh, but I also did my own personal development because I had spent since 2006 sprinting on creating something and really enabled employees to succeed, succeed. I'd be managing other people and every day a new fire would pop up. And so really, uh, I wanted to become the CEO of myself. And I don't know if I necessarily knew what that looked like, but I was searching and craving and wanting to be a better version of myself. So I was like, okay, I can either jump back into something right away or I can actually have the most fruitful experience where I can develop myself and come out of this experience a much better individual, a much better operator and human being. So I actually took a lot of time doing that. I hired, I coached up in every aspect of my life. So I hired a spirituality coach. I hired like a pragmatic coach. I hired a chess coach. DJ coach, a nutritionist, uh, like a health coach, a trainer. I, well, what else? I mean, I think I'm trying to think what other coaches, but there's probably about five or six people I had working for me, working for me, really working with me to help me become a better person. Uh, and I was just like very hesitant to jump back into it. So I really devoted that time. I also read a lot. I listened to podcasts. I went on walks. I did walk and talks. Uh, just taking walks and listening to people and, and talking to other founders, jotting down problems that I saw. And during that time, though, I also started working back on my e-com company, which had, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, had, has, had really deteriorated. And so I was like, okay, like, 
I can, you know, I can get, give myself some purpose and spend a little time doing this. So I started to work on turning around the company. And there's a lot of things I had to do that were required that were very hard to turn it around. And uh, well, I did. And in that process, I came across pricing as an opportunity that nobody is talking about, nobody was doing. Uh, and I started to really just ask questions and get curious around why does why is nobody on Amazon change price? And why does nobody talk about price? And uh, why does pricing have to be static? Like maybe if you look at Expedia, you look at Uber, you look at hedge funds, uh, they're using trading bots and algorithms. Like why are brands pricing products statically? It seems very old school. And we have enough data to not make it old school, to make it real time and to make it live and to make it dynamic. And so uh, I started exploring that and it was like a Rubik's cube. And I was like, okay, some of the learnings from my previous company were like, I wanted to be a single founder. I wanted to, I certainly wanted to solve a hard problem. I wanted the TAM to be big and I wanted, I wanted to be in the revenue of the company. These are all like kind of requirements for my next thing. I want to be a revenue generating aspect of the business, not a cost saving software, not an efficiency software. Uh, and so all of these mistakes I took with me as learnings and deployed them in this new company. And also I started really getting interested in AI. So at the time in 21, December, this is before ChatGPT, remember, before AI was like crazy in the world, I was reading up about AI and everybody in Miami, which is where I had moved, was focused on NFTs and Bitcoin. And that just, I was like, hey, this is really cool. Decentralization is really cool, but I think AI is really where the puck is going. So I was like, what if we take my spreadsheet that I was working on manually to increase margin at my e-commerce business? And what if we dynamically leverage AI to take all the signals, train the outcome and programmatically get to those outcomes and improve it It'll evolve, it'll improve, it'll grow and learn independently of, of me. And I was like, boom, there's an idea. <laughs> and that's what was the genesis behind Prophecy, which is dynamic pricing for e-commerce businesses. If, yeah, if exactly. That's it. Dynamic pricing for e-commerce business to maximize profit. Got it. So, you know, if I have a, a running shoe e-commerce business and I notice one shoe is is particularly in high demand, I you know, the price would go up and others that are for whatever the double E version, wide version of some shoe that's sitting, I could, I, the, the pricing would go yeah. down. Yeah. I mean, to keep it simple, a lot of people think that to make more money, price should go up. And on Amazon, there's something called a knock on effect, which means that your ranking position could change based on price. Oh, interesting. Okay. It could be demoted. And so it could be that you lower price, you get more velocity, you get more units sold, and that increases your absolute profit dollars offsetting the lower price. And Amazon will give you a better ranking position. To change more sales. Yeah. So it it. It's so, not just as simple as supply and demand. Exactly. So it becomes even that much harder, which makes like a higher potential outcome for, for our brands that we manage. And, and, and you mentioned, first of all, uh, the personal development stuff, uh, what did you find? You did a lot, spirituality, DJ, nutrition, trainer, I mean, a lot. What was the best investment? Well, there's like the fun piece, which is getting my other side of my brain working, which is chess and DJing. There's a lot of unhealed trauma that I needed to solve for in my own body, both from like the business conflicts that I had had and uh, so the spiritual stuff was really, really helpful for me. Like I got a lot of clarity from it. I got, uh, my core values from it and my mission statement in life. Uh, so, so I, I wouldn't say it's like one specific thing, but I did get a lot of healing from it and, and, and beauty from it that I was able to take with me to, to become that next version of myself. I had a lot of bugs. Those bugs happened to not be features. And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to just get more features. Like I had some, some of my own debt that I needed to work down and needed to work on myself. Got it. Whoop. Um, if we go back one, to- problems, one, last, mentioned- one last thing came to mind was Wim Hof breathwork was incredible for me. Uh, my body really took to it. I still do it. And it just helped me come into myself and become much clearer. 
and just I feel lighter after coming through that experience. I've heard about it. I've never done it. So we'll put that in the show notes too uh, for folks who want to learn more about Wim Hof. Um, so you mentioned before we hit record about a regret around prophecy. Maybe can you share that? Yeah, I think I flip back and forth around the regret because I, and I'm not trying to be boastful, but I don't necessarily have to work again in my life. It was my first time being financially free. And uh, I come from nothing, by the way. And I think that's an important part is like I came from my parents struggling as entrepreneurs. And so I've always was like looking back and being like, uh, how do I get out of this experience? And I never want to be an entrepreneur because this is you never, I'm never going to have money. And so it always sort of was a baggage that was with me. Uh, and it was more scarcity mindset than abundance mindset. Well, um, yeah. And I, so I, 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 I jump, I feel there's a part of me that's like, hey, I could have just taken a lot more time. And that part where I took that time was like the best thing I could have ever done for myself. And there's a part of me that's lingering, that's craving more of that time. More podcasts, more. I've always been curious and like craving knowledge and just like self-help books. It's just it's something that I really, really appreciate and enjoy. And there's the other part of me, though, is like I came across a really great idea. It was a shiny object. It was more than a shiny object. Though I essentially started building this for myself, for my own e-commerce business. So it was like I'm using it in my day-to-day life. And uh, I also happened at December of 21, where the markets were really, really strong and frothy. So part of me says, oh, I would have never raised money again if I didn't. And I would have never been able to build our own proprietary AI models that will automatically change pricing. I raised $2.5 million from the same investor that we had at Scubana, Defy. And then there's the other part of me is like, well, I kind of really liked that time in my life where I just wanted to like chill work on myself, be with my family. And so there's that tug of war that still exists inside of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you have for another entrepreneur who, uh, you know, an EO forum mate who is in the same boat, they've just sold their company, they don't need to work, but they've got a shiny object in a new business they want to start. Mm -hmm. What, what, What experience would you share? What advice would you give? So in my experience, two things. One is sit in the impatience. It may be uncomfortable, but sit there a little bit longer and feel the uncomfortability. I, I definitely, you know, I had this money. I had this, someone that wanted to invest in this idea and it just happened really, really, really quickly. So I think sitting with the impatience is probably rule number one. Like, can you describe the process of, of uh, sharing with your parents the fact that you'd sold this company? Yeah, so I was elated. Uh, it was during COVID, and I was on the road when we when we uh, we had all the lawyers on the phone call. It was the first call I did by during COVID that wasn't on. We didn't have a, a video to it, which is bizarre. So it was a phone call, a dial-in with other lawyers and with the counterparty, and. I just had to approve that the company was going to be acquired for our Delaware paperwork. And I came back to my house and there's a song uh, that we really liked internally in my house with my son. My son at the time was probably two and a half. It's called Give Love by MC Yogi. And I came home and we just started dancing to that song. And, and I, my wife caught it on camera and we got really excited. And then shortly after that, I, I set up a Zoom call with family to let them know that this has happened. So my wife's parents, my mother was on the call. My father's rest in, rest in peace. He's passed this earth and departed. Uh, but I set up a call sharing the news. And I mean, my smile was from ear to ear. Right? It, was, uh, it was a really, really incredible experience. And it was even before the money had hit my account. And then after that comes the experience after that, which is like, for me, while my life, nothing in my life had changed. Like I had a, I had a life-changing outcome, but my life didn't change. And also it was during COVID on top of that. So it was just a, 
it was a weird phase. And, and with the transition, what made it even stranger was the people that I'd been working with for eight years were now re- relocated to work with other, other people at the company. And so it just made the, it made the transition difficult because it felt like there was stuff that was more removed from me than given to me during the process. Because I built my, I built like my, a lot of my identity was around this business. What was your mom's reaction? Oh my God, I can't believe it. Chad, you're great. You know, that was, that was probably like roughly what my mother said. I'm paraphrasing. But, but she, you know, as I understand it, she, she, she didn't grow up a lot. You didn't have a lot growing up. So she must've been pretty. Yeah. Pretty she, proud. she was, she was definitely, definitely stoked for me. And I, I really wanted to be around people that were really happy for our, my success, right? I, I didn't want to be around people that were jealous or uh, threatened by this outcome that we had. So did you run in any of that after? I did. I did for sure. Yeah. And how'd you deal with it? <sighs> well, I'm like, I'm one of those people that likes to speak. I like to speak my mind. I like to have really crucial conversations. There was actually a great woman in EO who came and spoke on crucial conversations. And uh, we don't always have to just always align on something. Like we can disagree on something and, and have, we can have a harmony afterwards. It's okay. And so I, to, there's one specific person in general in my life who had been my, maybe one of my oldest friends who just didn't show up for me. And uh, I shared that what? information with him. I felt sorry. What do you mean by that? Didn't show up. For you? I, I I called to let him know the news. Like he didn't he didn't join the Zoom call. I had a Zoom call, like a celebration call with everybody. I was like super amped up, and uh, this one individual just like couldn't make time. They were busy. They were doing other things. They had other things happening in their life, and I get it. And I would say, hey, like I understand you have other things happening in your life, and this is something that's really big that's happened in my life, and I would love for you to be there for me. And uh, they, they just couldn't, he couldn't be there for me. And when I expressed myself, it, it turned out to be that doesn't, doesn't look like we were meant to continue our friendship. And it, not, not on my decision. Like I don't cancel people. I don't, I don't remove people from my life. Like we had a great tapestry that we built in our lifetime together and a lot of great memories. And I cherish those, but it doesn't seem like uh, he liked the fact that I spoke my mind and shared he felt a little disrespected and I felt disrespected, but it's okay. Like it's okay to be to feel something and share it and then come to come out the other side in harmony together. Yeah, it's it's not the first time I've heard that story as a side effect of selling uh you know, some people there's just jealousy and, and resentment is, is like a deep-seated vein and it's hard to hard for them to kind of deal with it. And it's not First time I've heard that. Did you buy yourself any trophy to uh, commemorate the win? I did. I did for sure. I, I just want to say one last thing on the last piece I'm still thinking about is that by, by sharing with somebody something that's affecting you, it, it doesn't undermine the, the potency of your relationship, right? It allows you to continue to be authentic with that person and speak your, speak your mind and, and, and result in, in a healthy piece together. So... That's, that's all I have to say about that, but that's just coming up for me right now. Uh, in terms of fun gifts for myself, again, nothing changed in my life outside of one specific, one specific gift that I bought myself. Uh, I had, you know, I've been working on my mission. And my mission is actually to, I really love having experiences. I think I mentioned pre-show that I have this software mastermind that I run. And mm-hmm. so I think software is a really hard business and we all are going through a lot of the same things that we can group share and share experiences around those, those things and share with needs and leads around them. So I love having experiences and I love elevating potential. And so my mission is to elevate the human condition through experiences and sacred moments. And so the word elevate really came to me and I bought a boat to complement this idea around elevating and I'm using, I use the, the boat as a vessel to elevate other people and to bring people together and kind of forget about their phones and to just be together and one on this boat. What kind of boat? It is a, it's an azimuth, it's an Italian boat. 
It's a 45 foot boat. I just went to the Bahamas on it recently. And uh, so it has, it has a two, two states rooms. It has a kitchen. It's like a small little apartment on a boat. And I love it. It's a great, it's great because it's not just a thing. It's actually an experience. And I have tremendous experiences on it with intimate gatherings of, of people. The SAS mastermind, by the way, is called Deep and Sassy. Do you ever host anything on the boat for the, the Deep time. and Sassy members? All the time, once, once a month at least. <laughs> Sounds like fun. I'm so glad you shared the story, Chad. The business is prophecy. We'll learn more about that in time, I'm sure. For folks who want to learn more about Prophecy, is there a website, an app? Like, where would they find yeah. that? Well, Prophecy, P R O F A S E E, it's a play on words. Prophecy is a biblical word, right? Where you're predicting with some level of certainty that something's going to happen in the future. And then the P R O F is profit, right? Which is our base, which is our core of what we do. Uh, and we predict price to maximize profit. Uh, so you can check out prophecy.com. You can email me personally at chat at prophecy if you liked anything I shared today, or if you want to just talk, I don't know, exits or strategy or the struggle of business, uh, feel free to reach out. I post a lot of thoughts and musings on LinkedIn and Twitter, so you can find me there. Yeah. So those are three great spots, and we'll put all of that uh, along with information on the Deep and Sassy Mastermind at... Uh, in Chad Rubin's show notes page at builtthecell.com. Chad, thanks for doing this. Great questions. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Chad. If you enjoyed today's episode, then as always, be sure that you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can either head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review, or you can share this episode out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's podcast. Again, quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, then I would encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel. You can find us over at Built to Sell Radio. Also, if you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. And lastly, if you want to get your hands on Ruben's assessment test, then I would encourage you to head over to builttocell.com where there you'll find his LinkedIn profile in the show notes section of the podcast. Special thanks to Dennis Labategla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. And we'll talk to you again next week.